Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Good morning. Love that song. Um, And that song is really at the heart of um, what God's going to, I believe, say to us this morning as his church. Um, Open your Bibles, if you can, to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be covering the whole thing, so there's no way in the world I'm going to be able to delve into everything that is there. There's a ton there, ton in this chapter. Um, But I want to kind of follow one stream through this whole book. I was reading, I know this whole chapter, not the whole, don't worry, we're not going through the rest of the book of Acts today. Um, I was reading this story from this uh, kind of Christian online magazine that, um, you know, one of these, <laughs> it's so funny how Christian um, publications can like narc on each other and narc on other people. And, and uh, But this, I was reading this article and it was about this um, this pastor who's well-known, and he, he's known for uh, calling out those who preach false gospels and prosperity gospel and things like that. And he's really big on, hey, don't falsely use money and don't promise people things God never promised them. And he's right about that. Um, but this, this publication ran a story on him because some tax filings or whatever showed um, that one of these years he had made an extreme it's for a pastor, an extreme amount of money. And they're saying, hey, so you preach against the prosperity gospel and yet you, uh, you made a lot of money. And, and uh, the response from his organization was, hey, 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 wait a second. Um, actually, that year that, that he made that much money, part of that was um, a, a gift that the church had given or the ministry had given him because of his years of service. And the gift was this first edition King James Bible that cost, I'm guessing, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And they gave him this gift because he loves God's word. And um, so they give him this gift and, uh, and then it's like he donates it back to the organization and it sits in his office, I believe, and it's under glass. First edition King James Bible, and uh, I'm not criticizing that. I look, uh, I'm no one's judge, but the picture to me of the Bible under the glass is what I'm leading to here. Um, it's just a picture of something that is supposed to be useful, being rendered useless and even wasteful because someone forgot what it exists for in the first place. The word of God, hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on it and then put in a glass case. And you got, yeah, I get it. Well, but it's a collector's piece. I get it, I get it. It's just, I want the picture in your mind of this thing that has a purpose and a use, but then all this money is either well spent or wasted on it for it to sit in a glass case and for the pages never to be turned and used. How often through the history of God working in this world have the people of God become just that? 
rendered useless, wasted, because we sit under a glass case of disobedience to God's mission for us in this world. The people of God are not just to be looked at and adored. There's not much adoration for the people of God in this world. There never will be. We're not to sit under a glass case and say, look at us, aren't we great? We're supposed to break out of the glass case and be useful for the mission of the king. And sadly, Israel, God's people that he had chosen, that's what happened to them. He blessed them, and yet they became in so many ways wasted. And this so often happens in the church today. When we disobey our mission and forget that we are a movement, we become a monument, standing still, doing nothing, memories of a bygone age. But that's not going to be us. You should have said amen. I'm going to say that again. That's not going to be us. I hope you mean that because you just prayed yes to God, whatever he's going to ask you today. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the call of Abraham from God. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. It doesn't say period there. Keep reading. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'm blessing you so that you will become a blessing. To who? I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel, I'm choosing you. You're one nation and an ethnicity. But my blessing to you is meant to be spread out to the entire earth, all families of the earth, all ethnicities, all peoples, all languages, so that those who are on the outside can come in to my family. This is God's call on Abraham's life. Abraham's descendants, Israel, were chosen to be blessed by God so that they could bless all the people and all the people groups in the world and bring them in. Now, Israel, sadly, as we read the Old Testament, Israel accepted the blessing, but rejected and squandered the command. Bless us. Yes, God, bless. We are a blessed people. Okay, go bless the nations. No. No. This is the main point of the whole book of Jonah. God sends a prophet, and he, he's a metaphor for the people of Israel. He says, go, bless Nineveh, give them a warning of repentance. And he says, no. And then he does some crazy stuff, and Jonah ends up in Nineveh, but then just preaches the most uh, half-whatever sermon in the history of sermons, and the people still repent. But this is a picture of God's people saying, I want your blessing, but I will not bring others in. And Jesus, the new and greater Jonah, in the place of Israel, became the fulfillment of this squandered command. And then he commands his disciples, us, to finish the work. Acts 1.8 
But you, disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's the city they're in, and in all Judea, that's the region or the county they're in, and Samaria, that's even a different region of outsiders, people they didn't want to have anything to do with, and to the ends of the earth, even greater outsiders. I want you to be my witnesses outside of the kingdom you already live in and bring them in. That's what Jesus asked of his disciples. So when we read what we're going to read here in Acts chapter 3, that's the context. And it's the beginning of a story about the people of the king filled with the spirit of the king fulfilling the mission of the king. That's what we're reading here in chapter three. Read it with me. Verse one. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man, notice this, lame from birth. He has never walked. His disability means his legs have never allowed him to walk. Was being carried. Whom they laid daily at the gate outside of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. There's a man, lame from birth. They bring him and set him outside the, the main temple courts. And he asks and begs for money, watching people who are entering in. Why is he outside the courts? Why is he not inside? It's because he likely had never been inside the temple courts because Leviticus 21 forbade him to. Certain disabilities meant that you couldn't enter the tabernacle or the temple space. So this man has sat outside the temple his whole life asking for mercy from people, but he's never been inside. Verse three, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he took, Peter took him by the right hand. So imagine this, the man has his right hand. You don't extend your left hand in that culture, someone. You extend your right hand to someone to receive alms, to receive mercy, gold and silver. That man's hand is outstretched to him. And instead of Peter putting something in it, Peter grabs his right hand and pulls him up. Raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. Probably for the first time in his life. Walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. There's no question that this guy has been healed. They've seen him there his whole life. He's a, he's a fixture outside this gate. We've walked past him. He's not faking. This is real. They were amazed at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, I would too thank you for, for healing me. All the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. 
Now, we might be tempted in reading this just to chalk this up as a miraculous healing that gave the apostles an opportunity to preach. And though that is what happens, I think Luke wants us to see more behind this. I think he's sharing this story as a picture for a very specific reason. Because the scripture Peter activates later in the sermon he's about to preach that we're going to read, the, 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 the scripture he, he activates that he hyperlinks back to, Luke wants us to see this event of this healing of this man who couldn't walk concerning the mission of Jesus' people. He wants us to see it as a metaphor or a picture of what we are called to do and what Peter and John were doing in that moment. Because the mission of the people of God has always been the same, whether Israel then or the church now. The mission is bringing people who are outside the kingdom inside the kingdom. This man couldn't walk, probably never had been in the temple courts. And Peter and John, through the power of Jesus, do something in his life that makes him walk and able to, for the first time, come inside a place he had never been in before. What a picture of our mission as the church. It says this in verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? He says, you think we made him walk? That's silly and impossible. No one can do that. But who did? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Peter activates in their minds the story of Abraham as they're seeing this man being reached out to, brought up, and brought in. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we, his disciples, are witnesses. So first thing Peter does is link Jesus to the forefathers and their mission to the world. He links Jesus with Abraham. Abraham, who was called to go out, be blessed, and then bring the nations in. They've just seen this man be blessed and brought in. And, and, and Peter says, remember Remember Abraham, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the one. So he activates in their minds this idea of Jesus fulfilling the mission of Abraham. But then the second thing he's doing is this. He's trying to answer the question, how did we as a nation, Israel, get here? How did the chosen, blessed people of the king get to a place that when the king showed up, they didn't recognize him and they murdered him? We've been waiting for him forever. And when he came, not only did we not recognize him, we killed him. How did this happen? How is it that the people of God, who are supposed to be knowing, loving, following, obeying God, can be so numb to him that they kill him? It's rebellion. Rebellion is why. When the people of God, I want you to just please open your heart to this. When the people of God habitually reject their king's mission, it inevitably leads them to reject their king. Israel 
for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years had rejected the mission that God had them on and that the prophets constantly were reminding them of and asking them to repent. And they just kept pushing it off and pushing it off, pushing it off to the extent that when their king came, they didn't even recognize him because they didn't belong to him. And they rejected their king. And I think today, the American church stands at a very similar crossroads. Not everybody. There are people in this church and in other churches, people that I know that have given everything for the gospel of Jesus. But most of us, uh, I don't know if I know, I don't know if that's true. There are plenty of us, including myself, who have lived squandering the mission of God for comfort, for the spouse, three kids, picket fence, and a comfortable retirement. I think we stand at a similar crossroads today. And if you think I'm full of it, that's all right. Maybe I am. But you seek the Lord on this. And you ask him what he thinks. You ask him if he thinks of you that you are walking in the mission he's given you to make disciples and teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. I've been a pastor for 22 years and I think I've squandered a lot of that. I've been that King James Bible in the glass case. And sometimes I put on a face that everything's okay and that I just wanna obey God. And people can look at my life and say, oh, isn't Travis a good guy? But for most of that 22 years, of being a pastor here, I've been a coward. What is the antidote to our rebellion, to our uselessness, to our sitting under a glass case, doing nothing for God's kingdom? Verse 16, and in his name, by faith in his name, Jesus' name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The antidote to our wickedness is not complicated. It may not be easy, but it is a very simple concept. It is one word with a will and actions to back it. It is the word, yes. 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 Every time. Yes. Peter used a variety of terms to describe the proper response to the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah King. Jesus has been very clearly portrayed to us to be the King of heaven that is coming to earth, that reigns over earth. He is the King of earth. And Peter has given us several different ways and avenues to think about our proper response to him. He calls it faith in verse 16. He says, repent in verse 19. In verse 22, he quotes Moses and says, listen to him. That's not just I hear you, but I will listen and do Shema. Listen, 
Call it what you will, but faith, repentance, listening, obedience equals one word. Yes, God. Yes. You may say yes to what, Travis? Be specific. <laughs> yes to the king and his mission to make disciples and teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. And some of your hearts may be saying, yeah, but what yeses are most important? What are the things I need to say yes to God to to be on mission? And that question comes up in my heart often. And, and it reminds me of when, you know when your kids, when you tell your kids to do something and they're like, but what if I don't? They ask you, well, if I don't, what are you gonna do? Like, what's the discipline gonna be? Basically saying, Dad, I need a little more info to see if it's worth obeying you. That posture and heart is not the posture and heart of a true disciple of Jesus. It just isn't. Well, but God, if I don't, what will you do? Or what are the things that are most important to say yes to? That way I can decide the things I'm gonna say no. Is that really the heart and posture of a true disciple of Jesus Christ? You tell me. So which yes is the most important? The next one. The next one. The next yes is the only yes that matters because it's the only one you have. You don't know when your time's up. And if you keep, and I keep saying no to God, maybe he'll stop asking. The most important yes is the next one God asks of you because it's the only one you have. And it is that yes that prepares you for the next yes. Now look at the grace of God, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Wow. That's gracious. He's saying, killing Jesus, you acted in ignorance. Now, ignorance isn't always morally neutral. There are things we should know, things that we don't know because we've refused to know or let sink in. So this is a sinful ignorance, I believe. And we are often guilty of it as well. But look at the merciful invitation of God towards the guilty, verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, that means king, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The sins we've committed in rebellion are blotted out in response to our faith-fueled repentance. That is grace. That is mercy. That is God saying, I know you failed, but I will give you another chance. You're not too far gone. I love you. I want you on my mission with me, and I will forgive you. Just repent. Just say yes. I can work with that. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get it right every time. But if your heart is saying yes to me and turning to me, I can work with that. What a gracious God we have. What a merciful king. So the past, when we repent, is dealt with, but now Peter turns his eye to the future, 
verse 20, he says, repent, turn back, be forgiven of your sins. So, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, hear that as hold on to, that heaven must hold on to, Jesus, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The people of God living in repentance, living in a posture of yes to the king is what will ultimately precede the return of the king. Do you want Jesus to come back and fix this mess? You can answer that out loud. Do you want Jesus to tear open the sky, come to this earth and reign here as the king over all the earth? Do you want that? Repent, obey, fulfill the mission. If we don't repent, if we don't obey, if we as God's people live with a posture of no to the king, Jesus does not return. Has God fixed a time and day? Yes, he has. But this is very clear. And so is Matthew when, he's, when Jesus himself says, I will not come back until all the ethne, all the peoples of the earth have heard the gospel of the kingdom. I'm not returning until that happens. Posture of yes to the king. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen, obey him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, see how he brings it back to Abraham and the call of Abraham? Saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. God's mission. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you, Israel, the Jews, first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter is hyperlinking again to the covenant and call of Abraham and the people of Israel. He's saying, you exist to be my witnesses to the rest of the world. You've been squandering it, but Jesus the King has come and you are empowered to go and fulfill this mission. God sent Jesus, his servant, to you, Israel, first to bless you by calling you to repentance. And anything but getting on mission with the King is wickedness. He calls it wickedness. Turn from your wickedness. Most of Israel, sadly, did not listen to Peter's message. Most of Israel mournfully continued and continues to reject Jesus, their king. We, the church of Jesus, those who have put our faith in Jesus and have accepted him as the king, 
those faithful to Jesus are those now who carry this torch. And God will use Israel. And God will redeem Israel. But right now, it appears that the church of Jesus across the world carries this torch of the mission. And so here's what it boils down to for us. Heaven is holding Jesus until the church's mission is accomplished and Jesus returns to take his throne. Matthew 24, 14 makes it very clear. I said this before, that the church's mission is only accomplished and Jesus will only return when the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed to all nations, all ethnicities, all tribes, all tongues, all people groups. Our mission, like Peter and the disabled beggar, that story, is to bring those who are outside of the kingdom into the kingdom. More accurately, the Holy Spirit working through us. I want to encourage you, we can do this. We can do this. Because we're special, because we're better. No, because the same Holy Spirit who lived in Peter and John when they raised that man up to walk and brought him inside, the same Holy Spirit lives in us who follow Jesus. Not a different modern Holy Spirit, the same. We can accomplish the mission. You can accomplish the mission, not because you're special, not because you're exceptionally gifted, but because the Holy Spirit of God inhabits you. Those of you who watched that free Burma Rangers documentary, so powerful. It's about a family, Dave and Karen Eubank, um, and they leave the... <laughs> the comfort of America, and they have been on the front lines in, in Burma and in Iraq at the front lines of these wars that have been happening, and they provide aid and care and medical care and bring people who are injured and civilians who have been hurt off the front lines and, and give them medical care, and they, they provide a way out for those who are trapped. These are civilians, Christians, who said yes to God. I watch that documentary and I hear those stories and I'm like, if I pass that guy on the street, he'd like, I wouldn't recognize it. He doesn't look anything special. The only difference between him and me and his life being marked and remarkable and why mine is not I think the difference is this. Their lives are marked by a very long and continuous string of yeses to King Jesus. My life is an unpredictable string of some yeses, some maybes, and quite a few noes. I'm not being falsely humble here. So don't be like, oh, Travis, thank you for being so, you know, on I'm, I'm, I'm being straight up with you. The difference between me and David Eubanks, besides the fact that he was like an awesome like commando in the army, which I am not, obviously. The only difference is that word again. Yes. He's said a lot more yeses than I have. 
to his king. All that is left for the people of Jesus is to repent of our sleepiness, our normalness, our maybes and our no's and our picket fences and our comfortable retirements. To repent of all that and instead answer with a joyful, yes, I will accomplish your mission. If you string enough yeses together, we will have a mission that is accomplished and a holy church that is ready for the return of our King. The question for you and for me is will I be a part of that? If we keep living for ourselves and like me, a coward for the sake of comfort, for the sake of not being offending people, if we keep living that way, we'll, we'll be useless and under a gas, glass case for the rest of our lives. And when Jesus returns, we'll have done nothing to bring him. But if we decide now in this room, this week, this month, this year, that little by little, as he gives us faith, or maybe not little by little, maybe we just need to take a jump off the cliff finally and say yes to him over and over and over and over again. He'll start with the little things in your life. That's what he's doing with me. He hasn't asked anything huge of me yet. You know why? I said this last week. He doesn't trust me yet. Trust me. He doesn't trust me with the big stuff yet. He's testing me with the small things. The small yeses day to day to day. Travis, you said yes to me this morning. You wrote a blank check. You wrote a blank check. Are you going to say yes when I ask you to do something that takes a little effort on your part today? He's learning to trust me. I'm learning to trust him. This is, this is the path. Today we're gonna remember Jesus by taking communion. You should have received a little communion packet when you came in today. I want the band to come up. We're gonna worship after we take communion. I just wanna highlight something for you about communion. Communion is not only a remembrance. It is a remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, but it's not only a remembrance. Communion, I believe, is also a commissioning of sorts. You see, in the old covenant, this holy bread, they had this holy bread in the temple that was set out in the temple and was only ever to be eaten by the priests. It would sit out there for seven days and then the priests would eat the bread and then put fresh bread out every Sabbath. The priests were the only ones who were invited to eat that bread. When Jesus gives this symbolic holy bread to his disciples and says, eat this bread and drink this cup, he's saying, you're priests too now. You're part of the priesthood. You're commissioned to go out into the world and do the priestly duty that I've called you to. Rising people up, 
who were on the outside and bringing them in. So when we take communion, we remember what Jesus did, but we remember the commission he's given us now and what he will do until he returns. That's what communion's about. I'd invite you to close your eyes. I want you to meditate on the reality that when you take this bread and cup today, remember back to the sacrifice of Jesus that blotted out your sin, as Peter said but also look forward and embrace the trajectory that Jesus' sacrifice bought you for to accomplish the mission of King Jesus on earth. Take a moment and ponder that, and then I'll lead us to eat the bread and drink the cup. Jesus, we remember what you did for us on that cross so long ago. But the power of the cross extends to today and it calls us to take up our cross and follow you. So we receive this bread gratefully, not only as remembrance of your sacrifice for us, but as your call and commission to us to make disciples in this world and to teach them to obey everything you've commanded. So Jesus, we take this bread in remembrance of you. Please eat the bread. And Jesus, you said that this cup is the new covenant in your blood. We recognize now as we remember you that the new covenant is not just for us. It's for them. It's for all those who have not heard your gospel or have not responded to your gospel yet. You died, you shed your blood for them. And we are on a mission to tell them that they can be forgiven. They can receive the blessings of this covenant between man and God. So as we drink this cup, we remember the blood of your new covenant and that we are called to invite others in. Drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.